the, um, the privilege and the honor to introduce um, George, who's, who's leading the meeting. Um, I guess I'll do the traditional how um, I met the speaker thing. Uh, I was involved in regional service in Louisiana in uh, about 1985, 86, 87, and um, we had some, I think about 1986, had some problems in the region, and uh, we voted to call the World Service Office and ask for some uh, uh, some members of World Services to come and, and help us get a handle on kind of some growing pains we were having in the region. Uh, they sent a few... Uh, uh, members of World Services to, to come and share with us and, and to give their experience, strength, and hope, and, uh, and, and to instruct us a bit. And uh, George was one of the uh, one of the folks that that came down, and uh, uh, I remember real clearly he did a uh, put up a blackboard and he did like the uh, the service structure of NA and uh, uh, lined it out for us and gave us a real clear picture of uh, you know what NA is and how it works and how it's all put together and, and how it flows and. Um, and, it, and it was real helpful for us. And, and I know that uh, you know, the big thing is we came out of that weekend with a resolution for the problems in the region and uh, you know, the problems that we were having that taken care of. Uh, and you know, it's one of those things that uh, you know, we get the help we need and, uh, and, and we never have to face the problems at all. You know, just like we do in recovery. I'm also very privileged to, uh, to learn from George in recovery. Um, I was privileged to, to work for George. He was my boss for a couple of years. Um, he's the director uh, at the World Service Office, and uh, I've got a, just a world of uh, respect and admiration for this man. I feel honored to be here and be able to introduce him. George? Hi, everybody. My name is George. I'm an Um First of all, I'd like to tell you that uh, this is the first ever workshop of this kind put on by World Services. <laughs> and it really came about through the efforts of members in this region who contacted the World Service Office and the World Board asking for uh, this type of workshop for this, this convention. And it was really through their efforts that we were able to put this together and hopefully give you a sense of what this fellowship has gone through and what we and, and the members before us have gone through to try and make sure that this fellowship was here when you and I got here. Um, first of all, I'll tell you, I'm not a history expert. I don't know every last thing uh, about history. Uh, I do have a pretty good idea overall of, of now how this fellowship started. Uh, for many, many years, uh, the archives of Narcotics Anonymous really have existed in the hands of individuals, and only uh, of late have we been able to obtain some of that information from those individuals uh, to create an overall fellowship archives at the World Service Office. Um, and it's a great privilege to be able to be a custodian uh, of this material at the office. I'm going to do something, and, and since this is the first time, we're going to find out whether or not it works. Um, I have a tape that was, was in those archives that is a tape of, of Jimmy Kennan. Uh, and Jimmy Kennan uh, was probably the person most closely uh, related to being, quote unquote, a founder of Narcotics Anonymous. But Jimmy always maintained that he was not a founder, that he was one of several people who got together. 
helped create the fellowship that we know today as Narcotics Anonymous. And Jimmy insisted on that. Well, I will tell you that some of the information that we have now and the information that we've been able to put together, Jimmy Kinnon was the most consistent individual involved with the beginning and history of Narcotics Anonymous. He was there when it started. He was there in the 60s when it restarted. And he was there all the way up until he passed uh, in 1985. And much of what we know about Narcotics Anonymous' beginning comes from Jimmy. Because Jimmy was one of the only people who kept records. And he used to show up at meetings with tape machines. And there's about 300 to 350 reel-to-reel tapes of the WSO that have to be gone through. And each one of them, I'll tell you, I've been privileged to listen to a number of them, tell a story. And tell the story of Narcotics Anonymous and how we began. Before I put on the tape, let me, let me set the scene for you. The year is 1947. Lexington, Kentucky, and the U.S. Public Health Hospital for Addicts which at the time was the only known treatment for narcotics addicts that existed in the United States. There was also a public health treatment facility later on in Fort Worth. But in Lexington, a gentleman who came from Louisiana showed up, got moved, his job changed, and he showed up at, at Lexington. He was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and his name was Houston. And he used to go into to the public hospital, and he used to talk to the doctor, Dr. Vogel. And he would talk about how they could somehow take these 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and create something that would work for the addicts who were there. Uh, once you signed up at Lexington, you were there for the full term. Otherwise, you faced criminal charges. So it wasn't really a volunteer place, although uh, people would show up there by their own free choice. But once they showed up and signed all the mountains of paperwork, they were there. And they got whatever kind of experimental treatment happened to be going on at the time. Well, what they ended up creating was something called the Narco Group. And the narco group was the first group of, of addicts, and although the, the hospital was, was involved with them quite a bit, it was the first group of addicts who started to sit down and started to meet together and talk about recovery. They met with very little success because the meetings pretty much stayed inside the hospital. But there was one gentleman who, after going to Lexington some eight or nine times, decided to try and take this out of the hospital, and he started meetings back in 1951 in New York City. His name was Danny Carlson. What we know now is that that Narcotics Anonymous, as it was called, was more of a social agency. You know, you showed up at Narcotics Anonymous meetings at the Salvation Army in New York City, and they would do things like make sure you got a job. They would do things like put you on your feet and put you up. And what what Hayes is going to tell you is a little bit about uh, Jimmy's uh, contact with Danny Carlson in New York and talking about what Danny was trying to do. Because Jimmy found himself, uh, he walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in February of 1950. And 
he found himself getting in trouble because of, he was making coffee and become more responsible for finding people for the meeting. As you said, as you hear him say on the tape, the first few speakers that he got were all at it. And the people that he seemed to have a closer bond to were drug addicts who were showing up at Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, they didn't know it because those of us who had experience in going to Alcoholics Anonymous when we came into the program know that sometimes they were less than welcome. Uh, and I don't blame them, really. Uh, they should have been less than welcome. Um, but nobody talked about drugs. You know, nobody talked about that type of thing back in 1950, 1951, even though they happened to be in California. Uh, California was a growing fellowship. Uh, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous had just adopted the 12 traditions. So the 12 traditions were virtually new. And not everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous grabbed onto the traditions and saw, and saw them as a wonderful thing. Um, and it took them a while to be able to use it. But it, it was generally thought from the very beginning that the 12 traditions were integral to what, in setting up a fellowship called Narcotics Anonymous and actually starting the meeting. And that was a point that he consistently made all of the time. And the problem with the other movements that started outside of Southern California was they didn't use the tradition. And you'll hear him say that. Now, in the tape, the tape begins with a discussion with Jimmy and Gene Hay. Gene Hay is a member who came in in the, in the early 1960s who's still clean today. He lives in Oregon. Uh, if anybody has had any contact with Jimmy Kennan, you'll know that when you started Jimmy talking, you could go down just about any subject that happened to come through Jimmy's mind this time, even though you were trying to ask him a specific question. <laughs> and that's just the way Jimmy was. He was a storyteller. And he had a great amount of information to share with people about the program and about recovery and about starting groups and about starting meetings. Uh, those of us who were not fortunate enough to get clean in Southern California usually found Jimmy on the other end of the telephone when we called. When we found out there really was a World Service office, uh, we found Jimmy on the other end of the line. So we're starting off now. These two gentlemen are sitting in Jimmy's living room, and the tape recorder goes on, and usually once the tape recorder goes on, Jimmy never turned it off, okay? So you, you're going to hear things like bird sounds, because Jimmy had some parakeets in the living room. Uh, you're going to hear the phone ring, Jimmy's going to get up and answer it. And the first discussion that they're talking about is a letter that Jimmy received back in 1960 from a group of physicians uh, in Australia. And he talked about, he's going to talk about communicating with them. Now, he's going to talk about that for a while in the tape, and then the phone's going to ring. And finally, he turns off the tape when the phone rings, and then Gene gets them back into talking about how the fellowship starts. The tape's about 40 minutes. Uh, and it's a terrific story, and you get some good information. Rather than me sitting up here telling you the information that I obtained from him, I thought it would be best for you to hear it directly from one of the members who happened to be there. So it'll last 40 minutes, and I'll come back up and take the story through the next 20 years. This little booklet here from uh, from Kevin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. You know, 
I remember in 1962 when we were communicating with those people over there. Right. And I spent from the first day in 
I guess. Hey, if you remember right, if you have to get that meeting at the church, and I got it back, or maybe we were just starting at that time, and I got it back, I took it down, and we played it at the meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, we played it at the meeting. It was kind of hard to understand because of the uh, interaction of food. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I don't want you to remember, there's a little fighter on there that gave quite a good fish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm going to have to look at I had that tape around me, and I started looking for it, but I got a lot of stuff. And the way I've been feeling the last year and a half, I haven't found anybody can enter. We're getting into that, you know, I'm and then I wrote and wrote and got no answer. Wait, it was mainly, what was it mainly nurses and doctors or medical Mainly for all, like nurses and doctors, dentists, any professional people. <laughs> and uh, the others were they're just lucky to have somebody who wasn't professional. Yeah. Well, and what they call the registry, the molecular. The registry there is like the AMA here. Yeah, yeah. And the wall in the registry, you know, freedom reading and registration. <laughs> so that's what made it very difficult because the other people were mostly sitting using probably morphine, of them around morphine, and so forth. It was a legit drug, you know. And the problem we're using heroin was not as widespread as you might think, you know. But we're using it. Uh, so you had a very limited number of people who were going to admit that they had a problem and were, were afraid. And the others, you know, the co had the average woman in their habit, he wasn't getting any off the call anyway. You know, I couldn't even recognize him. And so, three night out three or four times. In fact, this time it was starting in again, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see the whole story of the evidence here to show why these things happen. Just a few years back, the same thing again. They started a further revival and renewed interest in their mm-hmm. And then they did exactly what we, we talk about so often. They got away from the tradition. They started using the NA name and other places. And uh, we started to, uh, to make around with the program. And every time that they do those kind of things, we kill ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. And this happens, you've seen it here, you've seen other parts of this country, so in Canada, we've seen in Australia. But this time it seems like we finally got the feet on the ground and the running is very kind of conditions. Get together and I've got a couple of good two years behind them now that we need to really go again. Oh well. Yeah. I told them these people are talking to us about I'm so interested all the time. Suddenly, sit down with your group or your, your region or your area, sit down and make a case. Let me tell you what's going on. If you have any problems, if you want to talk about any topics, if you've got any good news for us, if you've got anything you think that's not part, let us know. And I said, and I'll get a couple of people around the table in my house here and we'll answer the tape. So a couple of weeks, we've got to talk to a couple of people. And uh, maybe in about another week, uh, yeah, maybe about another week I'll get together 
could find the original kind of NA, not the kind as we know it. It didn't have steps. Like it didn't have steps like we had. Who was it? Danny Carl? Danny Carl. Oh, Danny. So Danny was in uh, Lexington, and he had uh, come to AA meetings, and he got the much the same idea, you know. But then they developed that to a point where, where they differed from us, and what I didn't like was, that, uh, of course, when I wrote to Danny, there was no groups. There wasn't even a group except what they would get together and hold a group. There was nothing standard. Yeah. No ongoing group. And, uh, and I lost the letter and the other information I got from Danny. And I talked to a friend of mine one day, and I said, I'm going to have to write to him again. She said, I'm just going to. Mm-hmm. I gave her, I think I gave her his address, and she got it someplace. And she said, I just wrote to him, and I got a letter back from him. Who was that that wrote to her? And then he crossed the line. Who was the lady that wrote? Uh, about it and I thought, 
see if they'd be willing to sit down and, and, and try to get something called a meal. <laughs> so I went to quite a number of people and I enumerated all their names. <laughs> all I got from them was no, 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 I already have no. Some of the people I know well, and I haven't known well, I'm still know well today. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I told him some of the things that he and I had talked to him. I said, we've got to fundamentally, we've got to do it right from the start. We've got to. I've learned this in AOA. If you don't live by the traditions, you're not going to make it. I don't care what kind of group it is. You don't have traditions. I idea. You're not going to make it. You know? And she said, well, I don't know nothing about traditions, you know. She said, well, I'm going to do a group where I can go on where I can like I can go. And get some All right. Okay, so I called a lot of people and I like that and say this. Finally, I got down to a couple of people. I said, yeah, they come. And I said, they come. Uh, you know, Paul said, come. So, uh, who are we looking at? Uh, Tom, he said, she's a little bit of a but I don't know if you have to take a look at this. I said, I said, I said, I said, I said, Frank, that's okay. You can give us whatever, you know, maybe help us get a little. So the very first meeting at Round the Hall kind of didn't rise. Everybody's fighting with each other for sure. And in two weeks we had, uh, we had one or two people left of the original group. When was that somehow? This was around uh, the end of June, or the beginning of July of 1953. Oh, yeah. And so I replaced them with somebody else, replaced some of the alcoholics who were unwilling, but without all that track. One guy in particular, we came for, I think, for two meetings and finally quit. It turned out about seven years later, seven or eight years later, after we had died out and came back again, he showed up in a meeting one night. He got on the bells, and he was a full-fledged addict by Lansing. Yeah, so you see, you can never tell how things happen. That's right. We got on the Yeah, we couldn't keep a group together on it. As each one came in, we got a little further, we got a little bit of stuff, more stuff on paper, like like you see in that sheet that we had, you know, from the early days. Yeah. And then we finally got it set up. Okay. So... I got the hall, we got the hall. Yep, what hall was that? That's the dad dance hall. The dad dance hall. Church, you know. Oh, right down. Where, where was that about? It's on Armin's side, right? Up on Armin's side. And I'm not Armin's side, I stay on the street. Well, I'm just going to stay on the street. I'm 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 going to stay on the street. You can't try it. Is that the dad's club still there? No, no. No, it's just a science church. Thank you. 
I said, well, I suggest the Narcotics Anonymous. That's what I've been talking about for a while. It's just an anonymous program that tells people we're anonymous. And I said, well, you don't have to worry. I said, maybe the reason I want this, you know. Or I said, we could call it Maranon, which would be the same thing, Narcotics Anonymous. Or we could call it Maricana. And I'm sorry I didn't tell you all those names years ago, but I didn't know how to do that. Because I'm we didn't need to use that name. And of course, Maranon, I suggested to Alma, when she and I sat down together to talk about forming the group, she said, what should we call it? I said, sort of what I'm telling you, we have five different names that we do. We took one's Narco, and we threw that out right away. And I went, Narcanon, Maranon, and she said, I think it sounds like Maranon. Narcotics Anonymous is good for you guys and Nar Anon. You're not. So it sounds like Alabama. <laughs> and so that's where that came from, that name. So anyway, they found this and now they don't like any of it. And what they're going to do is they're going to call it NAA or AANA. Well, the other one, you can't do that. Well, I'm that's what we're going to do. The very first thing I suggest is they knock me down, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. They voted me down. So I said, okay, in that case, and I suggest, if you're, if you're the secretary, you can be a secretary group that you call New York and talk to somebody in AA in New York and you ask them point blank. If you can do that. Uh -huh. Yeah. The next week she did. When they came back the next week, she said, no way for more. She said, no, we can't use that. It's not perfect. You know, you so that's all right. The second thing I suggest, I can totally right off and skip to something else. Anyway, they voted me down too on that. She said, we were off to a good start. She said, yes, we don't even ever said, sure. And uh, then eventually we got, got it together. And a couple of other people fell off, and we forced that pretty well. Up to the point where we were all ready to have the first meeting. All right, we had the first meeting, and you know, the list, the list of the people came there. About half of them were alcoholics, and the other half, some of them never came back, but some of them have come back since. That's what Well, I knew a new size uh, attitude, you know, and I thought, well, shit. So 
guy takes his wife on Friday nights over to the women's school. He takes Ozzy over there on Friday night. And then he generally waits around, you know, outside and the names on I said, well, I go over and talk to Sonic. I said, well, I go over there. And sure enough, he drops his wife off and he says, can I talk to you? He says, sure. We start talking and tell him what's going on. And he's one of the guys that turned me down. And I asked him if he wanted to be on the board. He said, oh, yeah. I'm going to go down. And I let them find the room. I'm going to find the room. And uh, in a way, I'm glad now. This is why I said, uh, I had an attitude in separating the two fellowships. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm so strong, I think, because I've seen some things that happened to me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so finally, I didn't know what the hell else to say. I just kept saying, no, I can't. I don't want to go and try this thing. No, I'm, not, uh, I'm a medical addict, you know. I got hurt in service, and I got hurt in the big into the pearls uh, through the Veterans Administration, you know, and uh, I'm not a street, street uh, addict or anything like that, you know, where it changed story so many times later on. And I, I, I'm not saying this, but I have it in black and white. Yeah. And I listened to radio one time a year after this, and I listened to, to him on the radio in the morning where he broke his anonymity, and I said he found his N.A. So I listened to him, and I said, I'm sorry, you don't have a case. And I talked to him about it, so I said,
and for the next three years, they survived in this place called Shire's Dryer. Uh, and the problem that Jimmy had was the fact that the doctor who ran the detox center was paying for everything for the group. Uh, and along about 1959, one of the guys who was continuing to go to the meetings uh, finally came up to Jimmy and said, we're done. You know, we can no longer do it. I have to go on a trip somewhere. I can't do it. Here's the records of the meeting. Here's the $20 we have in the bank account that we don't know where it is. But uh, <laughs> hand them over $20 and said, that's it. We're done. And for the next few months, DNA didn't exist. But a few of the folks that had come together and come to those early meetings finally said, what we need to do, and there was this one woman in particular, her name was Sylvia, Sylvia W., and she came to Jimmy and begged him, we have to start this thing over again. You know, I could never stay in those meetings that, that were run by the one-man rule, uh, we have to start this thing right. And that really was the place where narcotics and anonymous, as we know it today, began. And it began in 1960. And through this, what, what, what they did this time differently was they began to write things. Uh, and Jimmy sat down and began to write uh, things like recovery and relapse and some of the things, what is in a, how does it work uh, in its earliest form. And what, what is uh, symbolizes in this frame is is all of the white books, starting from the very first one that was written in about 1957 uh, by the group that was meeting in Charles Dreyer. Uh, Jimmy helped out a little bit, Sky helped out, and a gentleman named Jack P., who was working with the Institutional Committee in, in Southern California with AA, actually put that first little brown folder together. And then as you move on and you see the next two brown ones, uh, there was a, a meeting mentioned in San Diego, but we haven't been able to find out too much about it. But up to 1960, those brown folders were the only things that people who were coming to Narcotics Anonymous had for those two things. And they asked you 20 questions. If you go outside where we have the archives set up and you pick up one of the notebooks, you can look inside and see what those 20 questions are because there's reprints of every one of these out there in a little notebook. So if you have some time during the convention, please stop by. And if you look over here and you see the first long white book, that became the Narcotics Anonymous Little White Book, the very first one. And that was the one that Sylvia and Jimmy and several other members of uh, Narcotics Anonymous at that time sat down and, and actually wrote. The next thing they really tried to do to try and make sure that the fellowship would not die again was insist on writing bylaws. Um, we probably wouldn't write bylaws for our groups today, but then it was important. It became like uh, what, how you run your group. Um, and since it was the only group at the time, they called them the bylaws. And the bylaws actually sat down and, and spoke about how to run a meeting. They set up, this is what the leader does, this is what they do, this is what we read in our meeting. And it really was the first thing that we can directly relate to as Narcotics Anonymous today. Because those meetings were much like the meetings that you and I go to. 
and over the years, some of the language may have changed, and some of the things that they talked about may have changed. But that idea of a meeting, of sitting down and talking about recovery and talking together as members of a fellowship happened in the early 60s. And we know some, some people like Bob Barrett came in about that time. Some of the people that had walked away from Narcotics Anonymous meetings in the 50s now began to show up again. Pepe uh, A from, from California is another one. Um, and they really became a small group of folks really working to try and make the fellowship work. Uh, they tried to uh, a lot of different things. And one of the things that, that they tried was they tried to set out a public relations plan, uh, which they were met with little success. But it, at that time, really, you know, there were no treatment centers. The general population did not think that addicts could be helped. There was no recovery for addicts. In fact, the main saying back at that time is there was an addict, always an addict. And if you read uh, Jimmy's story and We Do Recover, uh, he remembered that well. And part of what they were trying to do, and they did little by little, but mostly in Southern California, was to try and get over to people that addicts could recover. Because by the mid-1960s, Jimmy and I had about 15 years clean. And there were a couple of people that three, four, and five years clean. But they had a hell of a job to do. And really, not many resources to do it. But they hung together. Along about that time, there was a, 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 a group of folks uh, called the Magdalena family um, that came in, Sylvia Magdalena, uh, who eventually moved up to Northern California. And when she and her brothers moved up to Northern California, they took an A with them. And really what they did, and if you look out in the archives, you'll see these books called the Ad Center. Well, that was the first treatment center ever to use the concept of addicts helping addicts. That was a whole new concept that had not previously existed. If you went to treatment before then, what you usually ran into was your typical group of professionals who were trying to help us poor people uh, get better. Uh, and even though some of them did succeed, they certainly did not meet with the type of success that we've seen today. Uh, and actually began back in, in the mid-1960s. And it was really our first run-in with trying to deal with an outside agency who also had the same goals and aims that we did, and that was to try and help people. So it became a big issue in the fellowship in the early 1960s about this treatment center in Northern California using Narcotics Anonymous material out of the little white booklet in their pamphlet. Uh, and it was the first big issue, but they were able to develop it. And also, uh, Narcotics Anonymous is, is full of, how should I put this? Uh, as you heard Jimmy talk about, he inside hit loggerheads. And sooner or later, it became the San Fernando Valley versus the west side of Los Angeles. You know, there was, there's always those people. And, and we've always had that throughout our history. We've always found somebody to kind of, you know, fight with. Uh, and later on, it, it, it became Northern California and Southern California. You know, they wanted to do it differently. And they thought they had better ideas. And even as we move on into the late 60s, early 70s, 
you know, Northern California wrote their own piece of literature. Uh, and pretty soon, uh, there were some good fights going on. Um, but all of that stuff got put aside, you know, because the, the real job that these people have, and, and what I try to get over to people and talk to them about history, because most of us, when we go, went to school, uh, history class came and it was nap time. Okay, it was time to kind of think of everything else we could be doing, like getting high and shit. So, but history gives us a sense about where we came from. And history is important because there's a saying that I'm sure we've all heard that those who forget about the past are doomed to repeat it. Uh, and this is true. And one of the reasons why it's important that we bring the history of the fellowship out uh, so that we can all learn as a fellowship uh, from the mistakes and, and the successes of our predecessors. Well, back in those early days, there, there weren't many people who wrote. There weren't many people who kept records. Uh, there, weren't, there wasn't the type of technology that you and I can take advantage of today to do things. Um, as you heard Jim, Jimmy talking with Dean, you know, they got a tape recorder. It was like the newest fanciest thing out there, you know, an old wall and sack. Well, I have that old wall and sack, and it, and it really is uh, something that you would put in an antique shop, you know. Uh, but it still works. So anyway, and going in, in, into the 1970s, uh, there was a terrific amount of work to do. Um, and up to this time, you got to realize that Narcotics Anonymous had very little support from the society that we existed in. Uh, we had had up to that time some contact with Australia. We talked to people uh, in the early 70s in other countries. Uh, I found some letters to Brazil uh, from that time uh, in the archives. But it mostly centered on Southern California. And I know what I'm really grateful for in going back and reading these things is the fact that these people were not selfish. That although they had their jobs and they had a, a, a great deal of work to do there locally in, in California, they insisted on taking the message as far as it could be taken. And uh, during the early 70s, the World Service Office existed during certain months of the year. In the next three months, it would, they'd have to close down because they didn't have money. Uh, Bob Barrett used to run around with a WSO in the truck of his car. Um, it was really kind of a, a loose group of folks who had this common focus, but they didn't have any money and they didn't have any support. Really, all they had was each other, you know, and they tried to keep the fellowship going because they believed in it so much. Uh, and I'm grateful they did, uh, because if they had taken that in, internal look, I wouldn't be here today. So I was glad that somebody happened to show up at a place where I was at with a little white book. So back in the, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, Narcotics Anonymous exists primarily in California. And little by little, as you move on through the early 70s, things start to happen. Uh, Greg P. came in and got involved. And he was more of an organizer type of guy, and he can kind of help Jimmy and the other guys kind of organize things a little bit, you know. And Greg had a, had a talent to write, you know. And he had an idea about creating a service structure or creating something that serviced something to help the groups locally. Uh, and he really helped them do that. And they started looking at, at putting together an organization that would 
helps the groups locally there in, in Southern California and in Northern California. So beginning in the 1970s, we started to see a proliferation of some organizations in, in California. And little by little, those little white books kind of snuck across the country. And people have great stories about how somebody showed up, thank you, Steve, uh, showed up at their meeting with a little white booklet. And little by little, beginning at, at that time, you started to get information from Pennsylvania. You know, you may only get one letter from those folks and never hear from them again, uh, but you got something. You know, something started to happen outside of California. Meanwhile, uh, they had sat down and they made some adjustments uh, to the little white booklet, changed some of the uh, uh, language in it, added stories to the little white booklet, and began to create other things besides the little white booklet. Some of the pamphlets they created at that time was recovery and relapse. Uh, they also made two or three pamphlets at that time that were direct adaptations from Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, one was called We Made a Decision. And it was a pamphlet that we still had in the early 80s until somebody said, well, you know, we said, you know, you guys can't do this anymore. Um, so they tried to create literature because even though they couldn't go to these places, the literature could. And the literature could help carry the message of Narcotics Anonymous across the country and even across the world. So the 1970s, and getting into the mid-1970s, there was this explosive growth. Society had begun to realize that there was a possibility that you could help drug addicts. And little by little, treatment centers began to spring up. Not only the one in Berkeley, but treatment centers in Southern California and treatment centers in Pennsylvania. Uh, who took these initial ideas that were developed in the places like the Ad Center, places like Impact, places like Cry Health that still exist in Southern California today, and began to share that with other professionals. And pretty soon you saw treatment centers begin to blossom. And we also got better at communicating. Things started to get better, and communication started to improve. Not only were people writing letters, people began to telephone. And there happened to be an address and a telephone number that people could send things to. So by the mid-1970s, things started to get a little more stable for the fellowship. Um, people started to stay clean. People started to go only to Narcotics Anonymous. Now, this wasn't true for everyone, because the, by the mid 1970s, in the beginning of the 1970s, there was about 20 meetings worldwide. That was our fellowship. And beginning in 1980, there were 2,000 meetings. So the fellowship in the 70s just really started to grow, and people really started to carry the message. And people who got clean in California began to move. Imagine that. I was beginning to move. You see how we try and keep up with you guys at the World Service Office. Um, so you really have this new fellowship who took its basic foundation developed in the 60s and now it's beginning to blossom. And things were happening. You know, uh, service uh, 
investigative groups were starting in Pennsylvania, area service committees. Uh, Jim and uh, Jimmy and Greg sat down and, and wrote DNA Tree, which was our first service manual, which to them at that time in 1975 was light years ahead of its time. The fellowship that they say in the very beginning that we know the fellowship is not to this point yet, but this is how we believe the fellowship needs to grow and prosper. Uh, and they called something called the World Service Conference. Well, the World Service Conference met the first time in 1976. Now, beginning in 1971, Narcotics Anonymous started to put on what they called the NA Conventions. Also, uh, and at that first world convention in 1971, La Mirada, no, not La Mirada, um, in 1971, there was about 200 people that showed up at that, at that convention. And if you go out into the archives cabinet, you can see the program from that first convention. They had uh, a convention, their second convention was um, in North Hollywood, and so on and so on. So that's how the conventions got such large numbers, because they began in 71. So in 19, along those times, not only did they want to put on a convention, but they also wanted some type of service conference. Uh, and they tried to combine the two. And in 1976, uh, they had a convention in, in Ventura, California, and a conference. Now, I believe the record shows that there was 14 people who showed up to that first convention, uh, conference. And they were all from California. But this was the World Service Conference. And they talked about big ideas and dreams and things about how they wanted to help this fellowship grow. And they made some big plans. They were only missing one thing, really. They had the desire. They had the members who were willing to do the work, but there really existed no money. Whatever Narcotics Anonymous money we had at that time usually got spent on the area level or on the group level, and there were no large sales of, of literature. Uh, with whatever Jimmy used to send out packets of literature all over the place, and people either sent their check in or they didn't, you know. Uh, and sometimes you got you got paid for that literature, sometimes you didn't. But he believed in taking that risk. So he sent out a lot of literature. But there wasn't any money to do all these things that members felt that they needed to do. And as you get in and you start to see how this fellowship begins to get organized, beginning in 77, you know, more groups started to pop up in Pennsylvania. Uh, even as far back as 1978, we have letters from Louisiana. Uh, meetings starting in, in New Orleans, uh, other places, Georgia, uh, Florida, um, Ohio. All of these places started Narcotics Anonymous meetings, and most of them started in two ways. Either a member called up, the World Service Office, who heard about it somewhere. Now, most people talk about Narcotics Anonymous under their breath at that time. You know, when you talked about Narcotics Anonymous, there wasn't something she took out into the general public. You know, you kind of whispered Narcotics Anonymous. Or members moved from Southern California uh, out to different parts of, of the country. Uh, but it was a, the beginning of, of what has been a 20-year growth spurt for us. 
you know, society finally opened up. We started to finally get organized. Little by little, we started to bring some money to pay for some of the services that we were doing. We were getting together on an annual basis both to talk about service and to talk about recovery at the World Convention. So the fellowship started to grow. And in 1977, I believe, it was the first World Convention outside of the state of California. It was held in, in Houston, Texas. Well, it took about 11 or 12 more years before we ever let California have that convention back. Because from then on, it went to other places. And every place that World Convention went, Narcotics Anonymous started to grow. And the convention was really uh, something that helped us grow from, uh, from the west to the east. And we started to, to see that there was a need for more literature. And we started to get information from uh, countries outside of the United States. And we started to see that eventually that there was going to be a need for narcotics anonymous literature to be translated. And they started thinking about that. Along about 1978, we have our first versions of, of Spanish, the Spanish Rite Book. We have our first versions of German. And we also have a version of Polish uh, that many people didn't know about. Uh, some members in Poland had written Jimmy and said we wanted to start a meeting. And what Jimmy did was he threw over to the university and get somebody there to translate it. Well, we know today that many of those translations were just not usable because they were done by people who really didn't know and understand what the program was. But it was the beginning of really, Jimmy always had a dream. And the other people who came in, like Greg and, and other people after that, shared that dream. You know, that one day, you know, every addict would have the opportunity to get this thing called narcotics phenomenon. Along about this time, there had been rumors of the fact that one day Narcotics Anonymous is going to write a book. We're going to write a book, and it's going to be better than that AA big book. And it's going to be forever. Well, they've been talking about this for about 10 years. And they really had the desire to do it. Well, and I believe it was in 1977 as a gentleman showed up uh, at the World Convention or the World Service Conference and started asking about this book. Wanted to know who was writing it. And he got shoved over to this person, that person, and finally he, he got to Jimmy and asked him about it and he got shoved over to Craig. And that was the beginning of, of what would come five years later in Narcotics Anonymous Facebook. What that book did and what that movement did for this fellowship is, is evidence here today. Bell um, was a, 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 a terrific organizer and somebody who really believed in going out and getting the fellowship involved, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, up to that time, people at the World Service Office were, were seen as them. And when he came along, he kind of took this responsibility on himself, went back to Georgia, and said, we got to do this. And pretty soon, they started doing that. You know, and literature workshops began to, to prosper, uh, went around the country. They worked feverishly on this book. Drafts got sent out. Letters got sent out to the fellowship. They, they 
got their own list of things, and anybody who even mentioned that they may be in Narcotics Anonymous, and he ended up with something, um, and got a letter, please get involved. Well, really what was happening at this time was another tumultuous change in our fellowship. You know, uh, I likened it, and I think other people have likened it at the time, was there was a range war going on in NA. You know, it was all about us and them. Because when Bo started his movement, many of the people thought that that should be really what Jimmy did. And there started to be this friction between the WSO and this World Literature Committee movement. But these folks in California, although they have been pretty willing to give up this fellowship, uh, really believe that they deserve the honor of getting this book going. And I'm sure what Bo thought was, all right, you guys had 10 years. Okay? It's time to get it going. But it, it became such a rift in the fellowship. Um, controversy, and I think the controversy actually helped us grow. Um, there are a few people in this room that, that were there, uh, and I happened to be pop into Narcotics Anonymous in about 1980 uh, in Miami. And there was a little guy, there was a guy who came to the meeting and he read out of this little white book and it was the only piece of literature that anybody had. And we used to have to swear that we would show up with that white book with the next week, you know, so we could take it home. And I remember looking in there and I saw this address and, and I wrote to the World Service Office and 16 weeks later, my literature arrived. I didn't want to tell anybody. So I read everything and went to the meetings and shared these wonderful things. And eventually I had to give it up. Uh, everybody found out what my source was. So anyway, that's that's all of the outposts of Narcotics Anonymous, I'm sure, went through the same thing. The struggle to get the meetings going, the struggle to get information. You know, I thought Narcotics Anonymous and World Services was a, a group of 12 men who lived in a temple somewhere in Southern California. They wore white and spoke very spiritually. Um, and that was just my idea, you know. And I think other people shared this maybe in a different form, but, you know, I wanted so much to get near people who had recovery, you know, and I got involved in service. And my service landed me in Southern California in, in 1981, so I was in Mecca, you know. And Mecca was, was going on in two places. The conference was going on in the valley, uh, and there was also this literature writing thing going on in Santa Monica. Um, and we go back and forth, back and forth. Um, and it was just great to see all this energy being put to use. Uh, and then we we get into the argument, you know, people arguing. Not so much about who was right or wrong, but uh, everybody had this love for this fellowship that they wanted to see these things become a success. But it was a very difficult time for us, you know. People were taking sides. People were... Uh, probably doing some things that we shouldn't. And we were very young, you know. A lot of the people who showed up at the uh, World Service Conferences in the early 1980s were people who were young and recovered and came from a young fellowship, you know, because somebody came along and told them that there was something happening, you know. And people got involved because we really believed at that time that 
we had a responsibility. We all had a responsibility to try and carry this message. And despite all these wars and despite all of these things going on and some of the hateful letters going back and forth, uh, we approved the book. We approved a better service structure. We approved new pamphlets. We saw the fellowship go from 2,000 groups in 1980 that by 1986 we had over 7,000 groups of Narcotics Anonymous meeting on a weekly basis. There are so many stories to tell about our history. And really what we're, what we're trying to create is give our members a sense of where we came from and the idea that you can learn from your mistakes. Because today, really, from all of those early efforts, you know, I know in Southern California I'm very spoiled, okay, because I can go to a meeting, and most meetings I go to, there's four or five people I have over 20 years, and that's just on a regular basis. So I'm very spoiled by that. But I remember getting clean in Miami, and an old-timer, anybody had a day more than you? <laughs> And I think that realizing this and realizing the efforts and the struggles that we go through, and of course when I walked into the program, you see, I believe that nobody had written these things right and the steps definitely needed to be revised. And I certainly could do it a lot better than those folks. But I didn't have the information of why they wrote the the steps out this way. You know, why we have these steps, why we have these traditions. A lot of our problems in, in the early 80s was because nobody had taken the time to sit down and write about the principles and the experience our early members had with the traditions. They probably could have saved us a lot of shit. We're going to say that a lot of shit. But that's the beauty of, of the history. You know, the, the beauty of this, the history of this fellowship is just rich in stories. And one day, hopefully, we can tell it all. And I'm going to stop here in the mid-1980s, because really there's, there's so many stories, even beginning from the late 70s, that need to be told that are not complete yet. You know, because many of these members are still involved. Many of these members are still around today. Now, I don't know about you, but history is kind of, and the history we have the early fellowship until we got the last archives was kind of whose perception and memory was actually the truth. So we've had to go back and reconstruct things from, from very little information to find out really what happened. Well, what's really the beauty of how this fellowship has grown is see, we not only have the members who in the late and mid-70s actually went through this terrific period of growth for our fellowship still around, we also have the words, we also have the records. Uh, and hopefully through our members becoming more involved in our history and members getting an appetite for our history, we can all learn, you know, that we don't have to make the same mistakes over and over again, that many of our predecessors have already tried those things, you know, and there's just so much story to tell. Um, I have about 350 real-to-real tapes, and you get an idea about how it was to listen to Jimmy. Jimmy could spin a story, you know, and they're all Jimmy, and they're all other members, 
I listened to a tape the other day of a, a meeting back in 1960 uh, that Jimmy walked in and reported. There's so many stories to, to tell about what happened and how members felt. It sounded like, except for the language, you know, from the 50s, you know, being hip and all that stuff, it was like being in a meeting today, the narcotic phenomenon. Um, and that's what we need to share with each other. You know, those are the types of things that we need. I, I really hope, uh, since this was the first time that we tried this type of thing, that we will evolve to where we can hold most people's attention. Okay. Because I, I noticed, you know, we had Jimmy went on a bunch of people out. Because Jimmy wasn't excited. You had to listen to him, and pretty soon he enwrapped you, you know with the way that he talks. So hopefully, uh, by showing you these materials and having these materials, and yes, I do have these books uh, that were created last year that tell a story about Narcotics Anonymous and how we began, uh, I hope that we can do this out in the fellowship, that you will give me feedback about maybe some things that we can do differently. Uh, but I hope that you, I have been able to help create an atmosphere that when you leave here today, you'll have a better sense about where you came from. And if I did that, then I've been successful, and I thank you very much.